Well, this, this morning we, we start a new series, uh, as Kent mentioned, called Simply uh, Jesus, as we are in uh, the Advent uh, season, uh, and uh, this morning is somewhat extra special for me, uh, as um, at home, well, our text this morning is from some Advent things that we've been doing at home as a family, and uh, Nikki created uh, this felt tree, you know, just cut a tree out of felt, and and, and taped it to uh, Eden's wall in her bedroom. And uh, with each day of Advent, she makes a, a new um, ornament out of felt. Uh, and then she brings it to Eden. And then Eden gets to, like, with his, it's just super cute, right? She just, with this, this, this pure look of joy, says, you know, ornament with this, this mumbled letters. And then she runs to her room. Uh, and then she goes to this tree. And then she takes the ornament and she puts it on the tree, which is just fascinating. And apparently she only likes to decorate the, the top right of the tree. Uh, she hasn't touched anything else yet. But um, it's such a super sweet thing. And what she, um, and then Nikki, what she does is then, then she reads these, these cards that have verses with each advent, each day that passes. She reads verses to Eden and to help her understand and to share that story. And so last night as we read these verses, as I sat there, uh, and partook in this family experience. The verses that we're going to be in this morning uh, was what we read last night, so super extra special. And, and as we are in the season of Advent, we, we know that the Advent is, is ultimately about this waiting for Jesus, right? Like we recognize that we are in a space uh, and in a time in which we are waiting and waiting for like our Savior, for, for Jesus, and, uh, and we come to um, Christmas, like, part of that is represented in these, these tiny little boxes. And, and when, you, when you look at this box, like the, I look at this, and, and normally they're wrapped maybe a little bit more festively, although maybe this is kind of the retro throwback, it's, it's what we had in our house, but you, know, you, you look at this and you go, man, what is it that's so intoxicating about this box? Like, what is it that's, that's so fascinating, uh, fascinating, and why are we, like, as people, so fascinated by this idea of, of, of a gift? And if you, if you remember, when you go back, like, to, to your younger age, and, and if there was a gift for you under the tree, um, like, you, you would look at it, and you would try to remember, like, what is it? Like, if I see the dimensions of this box... What, what is it that I, that I asked for or that I know that I want that could fit inside of this box? Right? There, there's this anticipation, and this is trying to figure it out. And so, like, as young kids, you would go, and, and sometimes different families have different rules, and so there's no shaking rules, or, or maybe parents are tricky, and, and it's something light, but they put in bricks, you know, and it totally throws you off. But you go, and you, you kind of shake and, and you try to, to wrestle with and figure out what's going on, like, inside of this box. And what's, what's so fascinating about this is that I don't know what's inside. That's the best part. In fact, I don't know if you, maybe, maybe you're like me, and, and we don't need to show of hands, but does anybody feel like the art of good gift-giving is kind of lost on us right now? Like, like sometimes we're just like, like hey, what do you want? Uh, well, here's what I want. I have a list of two things. And you're like, okay, great. So if I get you one of those two things, 50-50 chance, like there's no surprise in that, right? There's, there's nothing. Or it's like, well, I don't know what to get them, so I will get them uh, $20 to Amazon, right? And so that we put that in a box or in a card, right? And, and so maybe some of that is lost, but, but good gifts, like I don't know 
what's inside of this box. And so, but when I'm younger, right, like if I come to this box, if you remember, like Christmas morning, you, it's your turn, like, and, and there's usually rules that surround how we open gifts on Christmas morning. But when it's my turn, I would come, and, and as I open, like, the, the, the wrapping, although for some reason I've seen that more people are, are doing it carefully and cautiously, like, like they want to reuse the paper. I'm like, dude, it's just paper. Like, just let it go. Like, kids come in, and they tear this thing to shreds. And they're just like, and they tear it open. And, and then they get to the center as they begin to open it all up, and they unpack it, and then they find this gift inside. And what's so special about this gift is, is that it is ultimately for me. It's not for somebody else. It's not like my parent gives a gift to me and says, cool, I hope you love it. Now I want you to give it to somebody else. Or like, oh, I meant to give that to somebody. No, like this gift is designed specifically for me. Now, if you, if you again, if you remember, and you, get, you put yourself back in this, this young stage of life, and if you open up this gift, how many of you guys, like, because here's the reality. I think that, the, like, we get to the center of the gift, and sometimes we are, we are overwhelmed, we're like, man, this is incredible. And sometimes we're like, wow, a- another sweater. Awesome. Thanks, Grandma. You know, or like my grandma would always do bows um, made out of underwear on the top. And it was just like, why? Like, you know, and then sometimes I get to the, to the inside and it would be like socks. I'm like, cool, thanks. I have socks and in, in, in underwear, you know. Uh, like, and so sometimes you, you're left underwhelmed. And sometimes you're like, man, this is incredible. I remember um, one Christmas uh, for me, and, uh, and, and I had something in mind. I don't remember what it is that I wanted, but I, but I had something that I desperately, desperately wanted. Uh, and, and I kept pestering my dad over and over and over. And I said, Dad, like, I was like, what did you get me? Like, because I'm so bad at gifts. I'm not good. Like, I just want to know right away. Like, you get something in the mail, and Nikki's like, you can't even wait to open mail. Like, I'm just really bad at this. And so I was trying to get my dad to, to convince me or to tell me, because really I just wanted the assurance that I got what I asked for. And, and finally, I just remember this moment in the car, and he just looked at me, and probably in total frustration and annoyance, said, no, that's not what I got you. And my world, like, sank. And I was like, man, like, but, but Dad, don't you realize that that's, that's exactly what I wanted? I didn't want anything else. I wanted that. He's like, he's like Seth, I, I understand, but let me tell you that what I got you, I think, is better. And I was like, come on, like, no offense, but you're, you're old, I'm young, I know what I want, and this is what I want. And he's like, no, like, I think it's better. And so Christmas morning, I came to my gift, and, and I totally expected to be underwhelmed. I 100%, I opened this gift just like kind of out of annoyance. I was like, well, here we go. And I opened it, and lo and behold, on the inside was a brand new like, shotgun for like, hunting. And I was like, wow, this is far better than what I asked for. Like, it's just incredible right? Like, it was such a neat thing. So, but here's the, here's where I want to move and, and transition, is that, that we are in a season, I think, in life, um, for each of us, we're in this season where really hope is wearing thin. And, and really, when I think about this gift, what does this, this gift represent? It represents hope. It represents everything that I feel like that I want it to be or that I think that it needs to be in order to, to help me or to satiate me, to make me happy. And yet, right, we're in this season now where like, hope is wearing thin. And I think we come to the season of Christmas and we go, okay, hope is like kind of like this, this, this butter scraped over too much bread type of a thing. 
right? And we go, okay, hope is wearing thin, but, but, here's, the, but here's to the hope is that at least it's Christmas time, right? At least that there's Christmas, and so we begin to think about Christmas. We go, okay, well, even though life may not look the way that I want it to look or the way that I thought it would look, at least there's Christmas music, there's, there's decorations, there's trees, there's decorating the tree, there's the traditions, there's all of the food and there's the celebrations and the traditions and all of these things that go with Christmas. And so we get to this point and we're like, we find solace in that and there's something that's very comforting. Even walking through Luke 2, uh, 1 and 2, the story of Christmas is in and of itself a comforting thing. But here is my question is as we, like, because if you look at, like, all of the glamour of Christmas, the songs, the decorations, uh, the shopping, the, the underwear bows, right, all of these things, if you're to remove, those are just the wrappings of Christmas, right? That's just, that's just the pretty bow and, and, and the, the outside, the, the special neatness on the outside, but as we begin to unpack the box of Christmas, my hope is that what we find inside is, in fact, the real historical, um, unfiltered Jesus, though in baby form, but what we find is Jesus in there. And I guess I have to ask this question for me and for all of us, what do we hope is actually in that box? Is do we hope that it's something else, or do we have these expectations about what Jesus should do, or what Jesus should look like, or, or how this season should look, or once COVID is over, all of these things, uh, and does it meet? Is just, does Jesus meet? Is he the center of that box, and does he meet my expectations? And so I want us, we have this, this, we're in this series called Simply Jesus, which is, is a wonderful thing. And you think about like unpacking the box, right? As we, as we unwrap the glamour of Christmas, we're going to find things that, that don't look normal, that aren't like, um, aren't maybe what they would have expected, maybe even from our perspective, that they're not what we expected. And so what we find is Jesus, simply Jesus is at the center of this gift. And as a staff, one of the things that we've been talking about, um, and, uh, and I want to use it kind of like as the series theme, is this. Like this Christmas season, would we focus on the gift rather than the box? Because it's really easy in a time of COVID to find solace and comfort in all of the glamour and the wrappings of Christmas, but it's really, it's Jesus himself, simply Jesus, that provides the hope that we are looking for. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and 2, okay? Uh, and while you're turning there, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to, to Luke chapter one. Um, and while you're turning there, just know that, that Luke is the longest um, book in the New Testament, okay? We're not going to spend more than two chapters. We're only going to be in two chapters, but it's the longest book, and, and he's very clear in his purpose, which is back in the beginning of chapter one, where, where really he says, Luke the author says, like, I, I, like I'm writing to this guy named Theophilus, and Theophilus uh, is um, or means lover of God. Now, that could be uh, a generic title for a whole, like, whoever is a lover of God, um, or it could be one specific person, and it's probably most likely the latter. And, and But the purpose of writing this book to Theophilus is so that, that Theophilus would know with certainty the things that he had been taught. 
And that's what Luke says. He's like, this is why I've written this account, because I want you to know with absolute certainty that, that everything that you've been taught is 100% totally true. And so what Luke does is he, he goes to great lengths and effort to provide a ton of detail, really as a historian, to record this event for Theophilus so that he knows what he taught is true. Now, Luke is, we've just been in Matthew, and, and now we're in Luke, and, and Luke is very similar to Matthew. Uh, it follows much of the same progression to Matthew, except for one specific, really big detail, and it's this, is that Luke is much more concerned as an author to, to help us as the reader understand Jesus' move towards Jerusalem. He's very intentional to help us as readers see Jesus' movement and, and really this, this Jesus on mission to get to Jerusalem as the center of where uh, he's going to fulfill all of the prophecy um, around him, okay? So, if that makes sense. And so, so, for Luke then, even though we're going to be looking at the birth narrative, what's important for us is as we, as we look at this, which, by the way, this may not even really be what, what it looked like back then, and it's just part of our, our rigid understanding of the, of the birth narrative. But as we think about Luke, Luke says, basically, as I'm unpacking the gospel story, I'm starting with the birth which is this cute little baby Jesus, but, but Luke can't divorce baby Jesus from the mission of Jesus. And I think that sometimes for me, I get so caught up in the glamour of Christmas that I miss that cute baby Jesus is the Jesus who entered life on mission for humanity, right? And that's what Luke wants us to see uh, in, even in these beginning birth uh, narratives. And so, um, there's really so much that we could unpack in this, um, as we could really with any text, and we will some, but what I want to do this morning is I hope that by, by diving into a little bit of the Old Testament expectation around Jesus, we will begin to see um, maybe um, some, some new insights or, or something like that, or bring some freshness to a very familiar story. So here we are in, in chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 26 uh, to 38, okay? So here's what it says, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was, was Mary. Okay, so, so, here's what, so here's what God is doing, here's what Luke is doing, is that he's helping us see from the perspective of God, right? Because only God sees in, in this way. He starts with this, this outward, like, big cosmic reality, right? And so, so he helps us as a historian enter into the timeline, like, where are we actually at in this timeline? Well, we're at the month six mark. Um, of Elizabeth, who is um, Mary's relative of her pregnancy. So that's where we're at in this time mark. But if you switch to my iPad here for a second, you'll see, um, you'll see this picture of kind of the holy land of Israel. Hopefully, we'll get to see that. Maybe, maybe, yep, yep, nope, yep. Sometimes it does this, sometimes it doesn't. I'm just going to unplug, and I'm going to plug it back in and see if that works. It worked earlier. Has, why does this always happen at the 9 o'clock service? <laughs> there we go. All right. Good. 
All right, so, yeah, clap, yeah, here we go. So it's like what, what Luke is doing as the author. So if you look, you see down at the bottom, you see the word Judea, Idumea, right? That's where Jerusalem is. Okay, then you have Samaria in the middle, and you have Galilee that's way up on the top. And so it's like what Luke is doing as the author is, is kind of allowing us to see from God's perspective how he, he zooms in from, from really from like outer space, zooms in in month six in this tiny place in this place called Nazareth. And if you look, so here is Nazareth, and it's very close to the Sea of Galilee. It's not very far um, from, from where Jesus even did his ministry later on. And so we find ourselves in this, this small town of Nazareth, which Luke calls um, a city which is kind of strange because it's actually a very small town. It would have been a very small uh, town. Now, he probably calls it a city because it's only three miles or so from uh, what's not on this map, a, a big city called Sephoris. And so Nazareth was probably like first century suburb, <laughs> okay? So that's why it's called a city, even though it is small. But as we Zoom back out, we come over here, right? This is a modern-day picture, right? We're, we're going to transition from, from modern-day Nazareth over to what it probably would have looked like. And this is actually in modern-day Nazareth, which they, uh, they, they redid all this stuff to make, and they act it all out. So it's like you're in the, the time. This is the town where Mary, this, this tiny, you know, this tiny town where this small 14-year-old girl was from. And we begin to look at this, and we go, man, life would have looked so much different than our life, right? This is, she's separating, like, sheep's wool. She's untangling it, and then what she does is that she makes it into yarn, you know? So she untangles it, and then she puts on this big spinner, and then she spins it around and, and makes yarn, and, and then she, she uh, dyes it and makes color. And this is the the hill where Nazareth would have been, and out in the back, you see all of this farmland, which might feel or seem insignificant, but in the Old Testament, this was the main battleground area for like three or four major Old Testament wars. And so you begin to see and understand that Nazareth isn't void of, of this significance. It actually has tons and tons and tons of significance. And so oh, there's a picture of Nikki and I had to get that in there, I guess. Yep. But it's like God is zooming in this map into this tiny place, right? And we finally get into Nazareth, and boom, here we are, and we find ourselves introduced to this character named Mary, who is really the key member of our story for lots of reasons. Like, she's the key story, uh, the key figure in this story, and, and she has outstanding character. I mean, that's who she is, and we'll find that later on, um, but, but more importantly than that is, is really this truth that she is chosen by God. Okay, I'm going to zoom back out and, uh, and then we'll uh, go, back to, go back to the slides, okay? So we find, like, at the center of this is, is Mary, and she is chosen by God. And so we have to ask this question then, well, why in the world is she chosen by God? Well, let's look at verse 28. Okay, here's what, here's what it says. It says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Okay, so when we look at that, that word, um, greetings, O favored one, when I, when I read that in, in English, I, you know, I tend to think, and maybe you're, maybe you're like me in this, is that you look at this and go, okay, so why is it that she has favor? 
Like, what did she do to receive favor, right? The idea of, like, having favor is, is almost as if she earned it. It's something that she, like, she had and therefore was noticed by God, and so God chose her for, for, whatever, for whatever reason. Like, it's, I got an email the other day uh, from, uh, from LinkedIn. Have you guys know LinkedIn? Like, I have it, but I don't use it. Um, but I got this email that said, hey, congratulations, Salem is getting noticed. And I thought, why? What did we do? Like I, don't, like, I don't know. What did we do to earn the favor of people? Um, but here's the reality, is that this word greetings um, is actually from the same word, is the root word is the word for grace. And so when Paul in the New Testament really extends these verbal offerings to say, hey, grace, like, be to you, this is kind of like a verbal phrase of that. Instead of it being in writing, it's like this verbal, like, like grace to you, or greetings, like it's this very non-threatening type of message. And then he says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And here's what's so interesting is that the word favored is nothing to do with merit. It actually is, again, the same core word, which is grace. And as a noun, it would be like a favored one. As a verb, it's like this. It would read like this, is that you, um, you who are pursued by grace. Isn't that such a fascinating thing? Like, so, so we look at Mary, we're like, well, why, why did God choose Mary? Well, it has nothing to do with her merit, and in fact, it's really the opposite. It has everything to do with God's grace, and that's the way that God's grace works, right? Like, like we can't generate or earn God's grace. It just, what starts with God's grace ends with God's grace, and so God chooses Mary out of His grace, nothing to do with her favor like, or her merit. And so, so oftentimes, I feel like we, we don't feel this way, but, but for me, when I don't feel that way, it's because I'm leaning into my disposition to think that I, am, that I need to earn or that I need to do something in order to get the favor of God. And the reality is, is that that's just not true. And so the story here starts with Mary and really just God's grace upon her. That's where this story ultimately starts. But Mary has a concern here, and you see it in verse 29. Okay, um, it says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this uh, might be. Okay, now first thing to notice is that uh, Mary is not afraid in this moment. Okay, she's greatly troubled, but it doesn't say that she was afraid, and that's intri- it's intriguing because it stands really in contrast to to Zechariah, who just in the previous verses, who is an older man, and when given a promise by God, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him was terrified, right? He was scared, and yet Mary, this 14-year-old girl, is not scared of the angel. She's not, she's not scared of this greeting, but she's concerned about it, and she's trying to discern what type of a greeting it might be. Well, here's maybe why she is. If we look back into the Old Testament um, at this next passage in Genesis chapter, uh, I think it's Genesis chapter 6, is that right? Genesis chapter 6, the text tells us, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so, like, if, if you're married and if you have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament and you remember these types of things, what, what is she going to be thinking? Man, Noah, okay, so what did Noah's life consist of? Uh, Noah was, was, was basically uh, given the impossible task to, to, to root all of these animals together and then to build a boat that was big enough to survive, um, like, a worldwide flood. And Mary, I mean, I think if you're Mary, you go, man, like, you, you're putting me in the same category as Noah. 
So, so what in the world, God, are you going to ask me to do? <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of a troubling thing, right? How about this next one? We find in Judges, right, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He said, this is, we're talking about Gideon, okay, who is um, who's really a, a warrior for God, this, this very mighty, like, person who goes into battle, and God says to him, hey, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And so, again, you put yourself with those words, the Lord is with you. You go, gosh, like, you're grouping me in this category of people that I go, is that, is that a category of people that I want to be grouped with? Because, God, what is it that you are going to do by grouping me into this, right? Like, we have this, this concern, like, okay, God, what, what is it that you're going to ask me uh, to do? And here's Gabriel's response in verse 30, okay? It says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So he just repeats kind of what he's already said, which, by the way, where it says you have found favor, that word favor is the actual word grace. You have found grace. Congratulations, Mary. Like, grace has been given to you. You found it, right? Okay, so that's, that's that. But then you look in verse 31. This is where this kind of goes on. And he says, and behold... You, this is like Gabriel's announcement to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, I want to start with this. Let's go to this, oh, you, you've already got it. Actually, let's go to this next slide. Um, look at the bottom here, right? So, you will conceive in your womb, you will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, right? If you kind of work from the bottom up, right? Okay, but then you look at the next ones. And you go, he will be great, he will be called son of the most high, the Lord will, will give him the throne of his father David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end, right? So like this is this, okay, so like talk about information overload if you're Mary. You're a 14-year-old girl in the tiny town of Nazareth. And what this angel comes and says, by the way, here's what's going to happen, you're going to conceive, you're going to give birth, and then you're going to call him Jesus, which, by the way, the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew Joshua, which means, uh, really, which comes from the verb yasa, which means to save, right? And so that's really what God is doing. He's like, I want you to give birth to the person who's going to save my people. But, like, if you're married, you go, holy cow, like, like but, but what about the rest of this? Like, am I responsible for this? Like, he will be called great. He will be called the son of the most high. I mean, I want you to notice the escalation in this, right? It goes from like, he starts with like this generic, he will be great. Yeah, Jesus will be awesome. He's, he's going to be a cool dude, right? Then he'll be called the son of the most high. Okay, that's a big deal. Uh, then, then the Lord, Yahweh, will give him the throne of his father, David. Uh, David is, uh, is not his father, but in Hebrew, because of the familial ties, basically, um, they use that word as an ancestor. So he'll be given the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, right? Not just for now, but forever. And ultimately, his kingdom will have no end. Like, it's, it's never going to end. Like, this is, like, this is an incredible gift. Like, like, you look at this, and if you're Mary, it's like, it's like Luke and the, like the angels, like, unpacking this box for her. And as you open it up, you're like, holy cow. Do I understand what, is, what I've just been given? Like, this is a prophecy about what I have just been given. But I want you to notice, if you remember going back to the map, like, like there's this zooming in perspective, right? 
but then, so he comes in, but then here, what does he do? He goes back out. Like, that's the pattern of God, is that he comes from the outside in big ways, and he zooms into these small, what seem to be really insignificant towns and insignificant people, and he really takes the small, and then he goes back out, and he explodes this into something massive and something huge. And that's what God does, right? He uses the weak to shame the strong, right? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. If anyone wants to be great, they must be a servant. He flips all of these things around. And so it's this inside to outside pattern. Now, we're in the season of COVID, and it hopefully, Lord willing, right, like it's coming to an end. But, but I hope that in this season, this is my prayer, and I want to invite you into this prayer with me, that, that maybe what God is doing is that he's coming in. And he's, he's, he's reducing and making things and come into the small to help us realize and reattain some of the things that perhaps we had missed before so that as a result, he can go back out and make it huge. Now, I don't know if that's what he's doing or not, but I want to invite us to pray during this time because when we look at Jesus, his kingdom will have no end. Like, that's the world that we live in is where Jesus' kingdom has been established for us and that we get to be participants in this kingdom that he is building. And this is where then we have to go behind the scenes in this text to understand what, what's really happening with uh, the people. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I posted a video, we posted a video on Facebook, and if you haven't watched it, I encourage you to go back and watch it. Uh, because what it basically shows and details and explains is that the Old Testament uh, in the Hebrew canon ends with the book of Chronicles. And the reason why it ends with the book of Chronicles is because it basically details out and lists all of the kings through all of Israel and Judah's history and on, on their successes and failures, but it ends with the world still in this broken place. And so there's this expectation then that God has yet to reveal the person or the one in which who is going to come and make everything right. Right? And so fail king, fail king, good king but fail, bad king, fail, good king, fail, right? And you get to this spot where it's like, okay, okay, what's going to happen next? Like, who's going to do this? And then we get to Matthew 1.1, which is the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that's the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so, really, um, there is this, this desire for someone to fix it. For me, as a Nebraska football fan, this is not the same for you guys as NDSU people, but like for me, ever since the era of Tom Osborne, all we do, like, and, and maybe this is sacrilegious, but we pray, and maybe we don't really pray, but you know, we hope that the next coach or the next quarterback will restore us to our former glory, right? Like we're just constantly waiting. Yeah, we're just like, okay, cool, when's it going to be? When's it going to be? Who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the one? And that's what's happening in their text in this time. And so they are expecting a certain person to show up on the scene, okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to reference a couple of verses, but, but we don't have them up there. Um, and there's three verses in particular, or passages, that when you look back in the Old Testament, and if you want to study these later on your own, write them down and go back and check these out, okay? So Psalm 145, okay? If you read Psalm 145, you'll find that Israel's uh, God is celebrated as king, but most especially in Jerusalem, Okay? He's celebrated as king, but especially in Jerusalem. Uh, we also find in Psalm 145 that when Israel's God is enthroned as king, the nations will be brought under his rule, right? Like, like that's what he's going to do. And the third thing is that when God is king, the result is this proper dispensation 
of justice, this real equity among people, and the, the removal of all oppression and corruption. And so if you read passages like that, it's easy to begin to see that, that there's this expectation for the coming Messiah to be a political military king. If you look in Ezekiel 34, you know, God basically says, like, here's the deal, like, all of you shepherds, you've been feeding yourselves. You, you really are this abysmal failure at shepherding my people. So guess what? I'm going to enter in, and I am going to be the one to search for my people. Like, I'm going to be the one who establishes myself over my people. And so again, you go, okay, God himself is going to set himself up on the throne. And then you look at Psalm 2, which basically, here, let me just read a portion from Psalm 2 for you, okay? And just tell me, I mean, just think, how would you think about this, okay? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them. This is key, right? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And if you hear that in their context, it's very simple for us to see that there's a, there's a clear hope and an expectation for what the king would actually look like because the promises of God don't happen in a vacuum, right? They don't. Like the promises of God, they were given to his people in a time of despair and brokenness and hardship and cruelty and violence and, and really unfairness. And so really these, these passages, they generate lots and lots of hope. Who is this person who will finally make right everything that has been wrong? And when I look back at the list, I go, and, and I know that because this is what Luke is telling me, his kingdom, because this is the prophecy from Gabriel to Mary, his kingdom will have no end. Like, this is, this is, the, this is the solution to end all problems, is what it seems like and what it, what it appears to be. And so it's easy for us, I think, to, to look at people who maybe reject Jesus as the Messiah, but the more you dig into it, it's so easy to understand that how people, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of corrupt rulers, would read passages like Psalm 145 or, or, or Psalm 2 or, or Ezekiel 34 or, or all the other passages and go, man, like the solution to our problems is a political king who will sit on the throne of David and who will rule and break our, break our enemies into pieces. So if you were in that context, here's my question, right? If you were in that context, what would your expectation be? What would your expectation be? Now, here's the deal. I want to take a step back here because there's absolutely nothing wrong with hoping, and this is true for us today. There is absolutely nothing wrong with hoping that God will work in a certain way. But what the problem is, what the problem in that is that when our hopes over time develop into expectations, this is the way, not just what I hope God will work, but this is the way that I demand it. This is the way that I think God should work, and if he doesn't work that way, then, then I'm frustrated, I'm out. Like, I just want to give up, I want to quit. Or I want to demand that you do it differently. So we look at this, we go, if we lived in this situation, what would our expectation be? It would be a king, 
And, and Luke really is helping his readers, I think, unwrap the gift. Luke is helping his readers unwrap this thing so that as we take all of the glamour, like you take these false expectations of Psalm 145, the false expectations of Psalm 2, the false expectations of Ezekiel 34, as we unwrap that, we begin to see that at the center of the box, like the gift itself is not a political king, it's actually God himself. It's not a human in the way that they are used to. And that's what's so beautiful about this, is that the gift that God gives his people is himself. And it's a gift that they never ever would have expected. And it's not a gift that they, I mean, it's not what they would have wanted. And which is really clear why so many people eventually reject him, because he doesn't live up to their expectations. And so we have to, I think, as we unwrap the gift, as we look in our season, we go like, okay, as I look at Jesus at the center of this, am I underwhelmed or am I overwhelmed? Am I placing expectations on Jesus that, that maybe aren't right? Or am I surrendering myself wholeheartedly to, to whatever it is that he would want to do in the world that we live in today? And so really what Luke does is he says, man, the gift is, is, is me. That's the best gift. Right? This is an overwhelming gift that we look at that, we should go, man, this is incredible. And he's saying that God is king, okay? So this is what Luke explains in these final verses, that God is king. You look at verse 34. Mary says to the angel, right, how will this be since I am a virgin? And what's so great here about her character is she doesn't ask why. So oftentimes I ask why. Why, God? But I think that she knows, right, because the entire Old Testament is the backdrop for her. She knows why this is necessary, but she does have this question, how are you going to do this? And so you look in verses 35 to uh, 37, and I'm actually going to start with verse 37, which should be up here. Um, so Gabriel gives three responses as to how this is possible. And, and, and I'm starting with the bottom one because it really is the umbrella for all of these. And he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Right? That's his, that's his ultimate thing. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. But then if you go back into uh, verse 35, here's what it says. He says that the Holy Spirit, this is kind of the second thing, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay? So he says, how is this possible? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you and then the power of God is going to make this happen. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 where there's this creation uh, event and the Holy Spirit is there and it says that he's hovering over the waters. And so it's like Luke is inviting us back to before the fall of mankind, before Genesis 3, before any of that. And then he, he says, like, basically the Spirit is there and he's given this creation creative element, okay, he's given the creative element, but he combined that with the, the majesty and the power of the holy, excuse me, of the most high in the tabernacle, all of that smoke that would have existed and resided in the most holy place. When you combine those two things together, that's what makes this event possible, this immaculate conception. And there's absolutely nothing that's sexual about it, right? It stands in contrast to Greek mythology where gods overpower or seduce or, or take advantage of women, right? There's nothing sexual about this. It's this truly divine creation via supernatural power that really is only, is only possible with God. And the result of this child is very clearly is very clearly vertical. If you look, it says that he will be called holy and he will be called the son of God. 
right? This is not, this is not on Mary. This is God's Son. This is truly 100%, totally, absolutely divine in, in, in a pure, non-sexual way. Like, that's what's happening here. And the third thing that Gabriel says is that, hey, like, your, your cousin Elizabeth, who is old in age, has already, or is in the process of conceiving her own son. And so, basically, Gabriel's like this, hey, to Mary, hey, you have no reason to be surprised by this because this is the way that God works. Look at your relative. This is what he's already doing. He's already done that, and it's already in progress. And so for you, the same thing is also true. Like, that's a, a different level of impossible. And what I'm going to do with you is a, was, is a whole other level of impossible. But guess what? All things are possible through God, right? Nothing is impossible for God. And then we end with Mary's response in verses 30, uh, 38 and Yep, 38. And he says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Right? This is, this is the end of the story, right? And, and so here's what we, as we wrap up. We go, okay, what did we learn? What did we learn in this story? Well, the first thing, the thing that we learn is that God is a God who goes to people. And that can't be overlooked. Right? God is a God who goes to people. He doesn't expect people to come to him. Uh, he also pursues people with his grace. Right? Like he pursues and pursues and pursues and says, hey, it has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with what you can do or what you think that you can do or what you hope to accomplish someday. Or if you reach X amount of works, like there's nothing you can do. It's by merit alone. And then that nothing is impossible for God, but at the center of the gift, what he gives us is God himself. And it's a far greater gift than we ever could have expected or anticipated in the future Messiah. And it's not what they would have expected and, and, and so I think we also learn, though, too, that, that what we hope, what we hope is inside that box determines how we see it and how we respond to it. Like, who I expect Jesus to be determines how I respond to him. And it's so easy for us to create expectations of Jesus, especially in a time of waiting, right? Like, I, I know for me and for my own life, I, I mean, I said this a couple weeks ago, but, but I expected that as, a, as an adopted kid, I expected that the way that God would make my life right, or that he would not make it right, but that he would bring full purpose to that is that he would give me a child of my own. And that's not what he did. In fact, he brought us Eden, which is far greater Right? The gift that was inside the box is a far greater gift than I ever could have imagined or expected. And yet we do this all, all of the time. So here's, I'm going to end with these, um, this big idea. Actually, these questions. I'll ask these questions and then I'll, and then I'll share. But hey, just my questions. Like, what are, what are your hopes this season? Like, what are the things that, that you are really hoping for? Uh, and I don't, I don't mean just like gifts. I mean, like, that's, that's, that's small, small chump change, right? What are your hopes? What are your big hopes in this season of life? And the second question, though, is this, is what are my expectations this season? Like, how have maybe those morphed into expectations? What is, the, what is it that I'm demanding of God? But then also, then this last question is, like, where might the two of these two things be intertwined? And I just want to end with this. So let's leave those up there. Uh, but I want to end with this. Like, the series theme is to focus on the gift, not the box. Focus on the gift, not the box. But I want to share this, and this is, this is just what I want to leave you with. Because this, is, this has been powerful for me. Hope is not generated by our expectations. Hope is always generated by God's grace. So whatever it is that we're expecting of Jesus, like let's like, set that aside and let's, let's focus on God's grace. Let's pray.
Father, this, this morning, um, as, we, as we begin to wrap up our service, as we're going to spend some time in worship and even taking communion, Father, I just pray that, that you would enter into this space. And, and I pray that you would bring hope and encouragement. And this is a, a, um, a, a normal story for many of us. But Lord, I pray that there's a freshness to this in our hearts, that, that we would begin to see uh, Jesus uh, maybe in, in the way that the people in this text would have seen him, that we would see him with expectations. And yet, that when the gift is revealed, what's inside of the gift is maybe not necessarily what we want, and so, or what we expected, or what we wanted, or what we thought that we needed. And yet, it's, it's Jesus. It's simply Jesus. And he doesn't, he doesn't bend to our demands, and he doesn't do everything the way that we would want him to. And so, Father, this, this morning, Lord, would you reveal to us where we need encouragement to say, like, gosh, like, hope is not generated by the expectations I have or the way that I think that he will work. The hope that I have in Jesus is simply this, is that it's the grace that he gives. And so, Lord, would you just, would you stir that, and would you bring encouragement, and would you bring challenge into our hearts as well? Lord, we love you, and your name we pray. Amen.